Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Acts 2, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. I'll be reading from the New King James. That's Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Perhaps you heard about the man who applied to the traveling circus for the position of being the human cannonball. He would actually be put in the cannon and shot out of the cannon several times a day into a net. But he was refused the position because they said they were looking for a man of different caliber. It's good to be back. I say that to say I appreciate very much Andrew, Art, Tucker, and Charlie for filling in for me while I was gone. Men of that caliber are hard to find, and it's always confidence building and rewarding and reassuring to me to know that men like that are here and and willing to do that and to fill this pulpit from time to time. I feel a responsibility to remind us as the church, as God's people, of what we're in business for, at least to do that from time to time. Because as I mentioned a few weeks ago, there was a business expert who said that if a business, doesn't matter what city it's located in, if a business forgets what it's in business for, He said it will probably go out of business within 18 to 24 months. And that's true of the church in a sense. We need to realize that our business is to share the gospel with those around us. And all the other things that we do that are peripheral things that are important and that help us to edify and build up the body of Christ, all of those are essential part of, of our spiritual lives in Christ. But our central purpose is to be here to share the good news with those around us. That's what we're in business for. So this morning I want to spend a little bit of time here in Acts chapter 2. I hope you keep your Bible open to the place that uh, Dean just read from. We're going to be looking at the New Testament church and looking at some of the things that uh, principles that I think we can glean from Acts the second chapter that will expedite that process. We'll be talking about the key to church growth this morning and I understand that that really I'm a little bit uncomfortable talking about church growth because that means that we're, you know, we're focused on adding people and we're really into the multiplication and, and the addition thing. And, and I realize that if you read scripture and, and you see what the real emphasis is upon making disciples and helping each person to grow spiritually into the image of Christ, That's the primary emphasis, I think, that God has given to us as a church. And if you're doing that, then the church is going to grow. You're going to be adding people. 
And as a, as a natural outlet, we're going to be sharing the gospel with those around us, with our friends, our neighbors, and the people that we work with. And so that's an offshoot of our primary responsibility. But I, I still believe that the Bible does teach that church growth is a very biblical theme. Because when the Lord added to the church, that's the church growing. And we want to see the church grow. I don't think there's anybody this morning who's under the sound of my voice that wants to be a part of a dwindling, dying church. We want to see the church grow. And not just so that we can post the numbers in our church bulletin, but so that we can see people around us who are now headed to heaven, who at one time had no hope. Webster defines key as that which serves to reveal, discover, or solve something. A book containing solutions to problems. And I know that there are several men both in and out of the brotherhood have written insightful and provocative books about the subject of church growth. And I'm thinking specifically of Flavel Yakely Jr. who wrote a book, Why Churches Grow, around 1980 or thereabouts. And, And other men in the brotherhood, I think, in my estimation, have rendered a valuable service in helping us to understand the vital matter of of why the church ought to be growing and what we can do to create an environment that will help the church to grow numerically and spiritually. And yet I want to remind us this morning that the book to be followed in growing a church is the New Testament. It is the greatest church growth manual that has ever been written. And so anytime we look at it and glean principles from it, I think that we can all be pretty much assured that this is what God would have us to be doing. As you read the book of Acts in particular, and it really is, as someone has said, remember it is the acts of the apostles and not the good intentions of the apostles. This this is what those 12 men actually did in the early inception of the kingdom of Christ to to, to share the, the news with those around them. And to make the kingdom grow. And you'll find that the overriding common thread throughout the book of Acts is that that early church grew. Again, our text says, and the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. And as you begin to march through the book of Acts, you don't have to go too many chapters after chapter 2 to find that exponential growth. It first begins with addition, and then it begins, and then it goes to the multiplication of members, and then there's the multiplication of congregations. I mean, the church was growing dynamically. And I think any spiritually insightful person has to ask why, and how can we, or can we, replicate that in, in our modern world? The real key to the situation comes when we ask, why were they growing like that? Even under intense oppression and and persecution, they were still growing hand over fist. And, and, And so we have to ask why. Growth, I think, is desired by everyone. But we need to make sure that we're following the New Testament pattern, at least according to Hebrews 8 and verse 5. We need to make sure that we're doing it biblically because we can incorporate the gadgetry and the gimmickry of the denominational world and we can draw a crowd. But that's not the same thing as making the church grow. Let me say that again. Drawing a crowd and church growth are not necessarily the same thing. And so our quest is not for growth at any price. Growth that comes... At the risk of compromising doctrinal purity is growth that is too costly. But sometimes congregations swell by transfer growth and they may mistake that for organic growth. I mean, the nomads had nothing on our mobile society. People are moving around all the time, even within the parameters of a city. And so church hopping can be an exercise that every one of us can be engaged in. 
But, but just because someone moves their membership from Congregation A in a particular city to Congregation B doesn't mean that church has grown in Congregation B. We, we grow only when we add people to the kingdom by conversions. And, and I think we all know that at some intuitive level. So maybe the task this morning is not so much to ask, why isn't the church across the world growing more than it is? What are we doing wrong? We really ought to look at Acts 2 again and ask, what did they do right? Why were they growing in such a dynamic and fantastic and, and, and tremendous way? What can we do to replicate that in building up the cause of Christ in our modern world? And I think that there are five things that we need to lock in on, and I'm not going to spend much time on any one of them. But I believe that all of them are just filled with dynamite that will help us to understand how that we can more effectively carry the gospel to our community, to our neighbors, to our friends, to even to our own family. And to be able to share that in such an effective way that people will be drawn into the kingdom of Christ. Because I remind you again, that's what we're in business for. Drawing men and women into the kingdom. Notice verse 44 of Acts chapter 2. The first thing that I want us to notice, the first principle, is that they made a united effort. The record of the infant church begins with these words, and they all believed, all that believed were together and had all things common. Now, I know that that had some, some material connotations, some stewardship connotations. That is, that there were people who had come into Jerusalem for Pentecost who, who stayed there, and so they had no real source of income. And that early church was helping one another in a material way. They were sharing. They had things in common uh, of the things that they actually owned and possessed in food and clothing and shelter and, and all the rest. I understand that. But I also believe that there is a principle, a spiritual principle here that's involved that we need to appreciate. And that is, in order for us to grow, we've got to all be on the same page. We've got to all recognize and agree as to what our marching orders are. But that early church, I mean, you can just continue reading through the rest of the book of Acts into chapter 3 and on and on. And you see that that congregation, although oppressed, although persecuted, they stood together. They had the basic essential unity that was necessary for success in any endeavor. I believe all of us, considering the fact that it's football season, y'all didn't know that, right? It, it is football season. Incredibly enough, almost over. But anyway, every one of us has seen football teams or basketball teams or any kind of athletic team that had good coaching, that had very talented players and a good game plan, but they were ruined by internal strife. I mean, that internal strife in any organization can get it off track and cause it to lose sight of, of what it's supposed to be doing. And that's to win games if you're, if you're in an athletic contest. That's to win souls if you're in the church of our Lord. So we need to be careful that we're not working against one another. That we have all things in common in the sense of having a common objective. You remember the story about the, the man who saw his neighbor trying to push a piano through his front door. And he went over to offer his help. And the guy said, well, sure. I would love some help. And so they began to push and strain and groan. And, and after 10 minutes, his neighbor said, I, I don't think we're going to get this piano in this door. And the man said, in, I'm trying to get it out. And, and sometimes, sometimes we do that. We need to stop, first of all, and say, are we getting this in or out? Are, are we on the same page? Do we have the same common objective here? Jealousy and envy can sometimes enter into the situation. In fact, that isn't... 
That isn't a modern phenomenon. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul regrettably had to say this about the church at Galatia. Galatians, Galatians 5 and verse 15, you're biting and devouring one another. Interesting turn of phrase. And then he went on to say later in that same chapter, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed of one another. Here's a congregation that ought to be winning their friends and brothers and neighbors to Christ. And what were they doing? They were guilty of spiritual cannibalism. They were just chewing on one another. They were criticizing one another and judging one another. That's what they thought they were in business for. Is to always be telling you how that you ought to be doing things without really looking at, at the log in our own eyes in, in light of what Jesus said in Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5. I know of some churches that have just eaten themselves up just the way Paul described and they do more, they do more harm than good for the cause of Christ. Pogo said we have met the enemy and he is us and we need to be careful that we're not guilty of that. The early church, I mean, they work for peace. Here's the way Paul expressed it in Ephesians 4 verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I can't read that passage without really locking in on that word endeavoring. It's a strong word. It means that they were willing to pay the price and do whatever was necessary in order to keep the unity of the body in place. Let me give you one New Testament example of that, then we'll move on. In Acts, the sixth chapter, the Bible says that there was a murmuring, a complaining among the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected. And they set about to correct the situation. Now, let me emphasize that last phrase, and they set about to correct that situation. Charles Mylander is not a member of our fellowship, but he's a very astute man who has spent his life talking about church morale. And I've read several of his books. And he said, a congregation of high morale is not a congregation that naively believes that they will never have a problem. But it is a congregation that believes that when problems come along, they will be addressed and dealt with and resolved. And I believe that's exactly right. And I think we see that replicated in Acts chapter 6. So the Grecian widows are being neglected. That's the problem. So they come to the apostles and ask the apostles to address that situation, which is exactly what they did, seek you out from among you, and you remember the protocol that they gave. How important that is, that we, that we be on the same page in terms of what God wants us to be doing, that we, we not be working against one another. Here's the way Paul said it in Romans fourteen nineteen: Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. And things wherewith we may edify one another. Think about how wonderful, how much more wonderful it would be in the kingdom of Christ. If all of us were doing that, looking for, I mean actively looking for every, every day the things that will make for peace among us. And not conflict. And the things by which we may edify, that just means to build one another up. I'll remind you that one of the things that we're in business for is to build up the body of Christ. So I challenge every one of us this week to be thinking about ways that we can build one another up, that we can encourage one another, and that we can make sure that we have that united front when it comes to saving the world lost in sin. Here, there are other New Testament admonitions that I think come into play and become significant in this regard. Be of the same mind one toward another, Romans 12, 16. What about this one, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. 
Here's one in Philippians 2, verse 2. Fulfill my joy that you may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. And then one more, 1 Peter 3 and verse 8. Finally, all of you be, be of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be full of pity, and be courteous. That's the way the body of Christ ought to be operating. And you know what? If we're doing that, And if we're looking for ways to build one another up and strengthen one another spiritually, don't you think that the world is going to sit up and take notice of that and say, I don't know what it is that they have, but I want to be a part of that. Because out in the world, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and we need to make sure that in the kingdom of Christ, we're not dogs. We're God's people, and we have a higher calling. And that is that we ought to replicate what they did in the original church, in the early church, and be people who have a common objective. The early church cooperated with one another. They were not their own worst enemy. And folks, we'll never grow today until we all want the same thing. I think there's a principle even in the Old Testament that speaks to this kind of unity that I'm trying to describe this morning. It's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. A threefold cord is not easily broken. There is power and strength in numbers. And when all of God's people are together, we're stronger because of it. Here's the second thing I find in Acts chapter 2. They were steadfast. Look again at verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. I want you to notice the word there. It is not sporadically. It is steadfastly. Paul admonished in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that great resurrection chapter, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your work or labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Watch you stand fast in the faith, be mature, and be strong. Unstable members can weaken a congregation and the cause for which it contends. We need to make sure that we're not that way. We need to make sure that we are steadfast in our relationship to the Lord. Here's another thing, a takeaway from, from Acts 2.42. I believe that, that Dr. Luke is telling us there by inspiration that that means that we need to make sure that we're doing all the right things daily. Even the small things that will bring us closer to Christ and closer to one another. You see, it's not just the big things. It's the small things that are done steadfastly, consistently, without feigning, without losing heart, that will cause the kingdom of Christ to grow. Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, we don't need to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We need to be steadfast people. Here's a third principle that comes from, from our text. They believe their message. Look at verse, Acts chapter, we're skipping over a few chapters, actually, chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God, by the way, this comes on the heels of the example that I gave a moment ago about the Grecian widows being neglected. And I think this shows the power of what happens when the leaders, in this case it was the apostles, immediately address and resolve a problem. Problems do not discourage congregations. It's problems that are unaddressed. That will discourage a congregation. And here's what happened on the heels of the apostles addressing that particular situation in the first six verses of Acts chapter 6. Verse 7 says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to to the faith. If you want the church increased, the word of God must increase. We need to get the word out. We need to be sharing, communicating the good news with people around us. They had, enough, they had enough faith and enough compassion 
to speak to the lost. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's God's power to save them that believe. They were not ashamed to confess their Lord, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 32-33. They were, they were fishers of men and not just keepers of the aquarium. They, they were people who, who loved to share that message. It wasn't a matter of, I've got to do this. They looked for opportunities to be able to share their faith with those around them. And their faith was so strong that it weathered them through the storms of opposition. I, I can't help but stop and, and be amazed when I get to the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. Because it seems, now I, I'm not preaching this dogmatically, just bear that in mind. That the early church would have been content to have stayed in Jerusalem had it not been for the intense persecution that came upon them. But the Bible says when that happened... In Acts 8 and verse 4, when that persecution took place in the Jerusalem church, the Bible says, and they that were scattered abroad gave up. No, that's not what he says. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They used that persecution to disperse them from their headquarters, which at the time was Jerusalem. And everywhere they went, they spread the word. So for the enemies of Christ, it was like throwing water on a grease fire. I mean, they thought, we're going to stop this movement. We'll, we'll stop it right now. We'll cut the head off the snake. And that didn't happen. When they persecuted the church, they just scattered everywhere and continued sharing God's good news with those around them wherever they went. So they believed their message. Number four, they were sacrificial. This sacrificial spirit is always going to be necessary for the church to grow. If I'm always looking at the church asking, what can the church do for me? Rather than how can I serve God and my community, my world, through the church, the church will never grow. I've got to have a spirit of sacrifice. I've got to be willing to sacrifice some things in my life. I'm not just talking about my money. I'm talking about my time, my efforts, my resources, and all of that. We've got to be willing to be people that were sacrificial. Here's the Bible for that. Look at Acts 2 and verse 45. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, I haven't read anywhere in the either immediate or remote context that said they were required to do that. No, the great blessing came from the fact that they did it voluntarily. Here's someone who has a legitimate need. I'm going to sacrifice of what I have to help meet that need. Isn't isn't that a wonderful world to live in? Where if people had, everybody had that spirit of sacrifice? Over in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5, we find a great example of that. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, is talking about the Macedonian brethren and how that they, out of their deep poverty, not just poverty, I mean, they weren't just on the wrong side of the tracks, folks. They weren't in sight of the tracks. I mean, their rainbow was in black and white. That's how poor they were. You know what I'm talking about? These were poor people. And yet in the first five verses of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is commending them and patting them on the back and telling them how, how proud he is of them and how, what, how much gratification there comes in seeing them out of their deep poverty to give liberally to the cause of Christ. And, and I think the key is found in verse 5. And this they did, the Bible says, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So the key to, to liberal giving is to make sure that you first give yourself to the Lord. That you have fully surrendered yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, guess what? If you're, if you're scripturally baptized into Christ, your, your wallet's going to go with you. Everything you have is now going to be a servant, an instrument by which you're going to be able to cause 
the world to know something more about the Lord Jesus Christ. What was it that they had done? Well, Paul specifies in, in that text how that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality. Paul is commending them for their liberal spirit. The fact that they were willing to sacrifice even though they were very poor. He also says something similar, I think, to all Christians in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, literally, I beg you by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I often preach on that passage and remind us that Christianity begins, ends, and is forever more sustained between the years. There has to be a transformation of mind if we're going to stick with it in terms of our Christianity. So our minds have to be changed. We can't be poured into the mold of the world, mentally speaking. We can't have their values. We can't think the way they think. We've got to think the way God would have us to think and within the parameters of his will. But if we do that, then we're going to render our bodies not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. That tells me that most of us are never going to have to make that hard choice of do a, am I willing to die for Christ? I hope that we would answer yes if we ever got to that point in light of Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, Jesus said. But most of us will never have to face that decision. We will never come to that fork in the road where we actually have to give our lives. Paul said that's not the challenge for most of us. The challenge is are you willing to give yourself as a living sacrifice? And the Lord, you have that spirit that you're willing to say, everything that I have belongs to the Lord. And I'm going to use that as a faithful steward of his in helping build up the body of Christ and to share the gospel with those around us. How important that is. I, I'm here to say, and I don't want this to be negative, but I, I, I have to say that little faith is the cause of a non-sacrificial spirit. Little faith is, is, is the cause of non-attendance in our worship services. Little faith is the cause of non-sacrificial giving when the contribution plate comes by. Little faith is the cause of poor program participation, trying to find people that are actually willing to work in the local congregations of God's people. Somebody said, in fact, I think I saw this on a church sign one time that said, people don't fail to attend church because they live too far from the building, but because they live too far from God. That's about right, isn't it? So we've got to examine our personal relationship to the Lord. Here's the fifth and the final key to growth of the church of the Lord that I see in God's word. And I'm, I'm going to, to flip over to Philippians chapter 2, and I would invite you to do the same thing. Philippians 2, 14 through the first part of verse 16 for this principle. Here's what Paul says there to the Philippians and to us. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Boy, that would be a great challenge for some of us, wouldn't it? Just to stop right there and go, that's my goal for this year. I'm not going to complain. This is the no complaint zone for the rest of the year and into through 2020. Do all things without murmuring and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. I think we would all agree. That the kind of world that Paul describes there, crooked and perverse, could well describe our own world. Notice what he says next. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That's very similar to what Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He told his disciples then and now, you are the light of the world. 
A city that set itself on a hill that cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle, put it under a basket, but on a candlestick so that it gives light to all that are in the house. You let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I think one principle that we cannot fail to appreciate in causing the kingdom of Christ to grow is the fact that every one of us needs to be a candlestick upholding the light of Jesus Christ in our lives, living the Christian life consistently so that our neighbors and anyone that we have opportunity to share the gospel with can see the consistency of our own. No, we're not perfect, but they can see our our effort that we're trying every day to make the right decisions, to make the right choices, and I mean make the choices that God would have us to be making. An unconverted church can't uphold the light. A church that will not uphold its banner is doomed to extinction. In fact, to the Ephesian church in those seven letters to the churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and verse 5, the Lord told them that your, your candlestick, unless you return to the love that motivated you at first, and, can, and go back to doing the things that you were doing when you first fell in love with the Lord, he said, your candlestick is going to be removed from out of its place. They'll lose their right to exist. I, I sincerely believe, and I have to, otherwise we'd all be wasting our time here this morning. I really believe that if we'll do these five simple things, the church will grow. If we go back and say, what was the apostolic church doing? I mean, starting from Pentecost forward, in order to create that environment for growth of the kingdom of Christ. And if we'll say, what were they doing right? And we will replicate that in our own hearts and lives, that the church will continue to grow. It'll be a congregation that's busy inviting people. It's always trying to share the gospel and looking for every opportunity to be able to teach the truth. They'll be practicing as-you-go evangelism. Did you know that about the language of Matthew's account of the Great Commission? The great command is found in Matthew 22. The great commission is found in Matthew 28. And the Lord said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always, even into the end of the age. When he began that, the the recitation of those marching orders, he said, go into all the world, My understanding of the original language is that it literally means as you go. You see, soul winning is not something that we do so much as it is something that we are. As we go, we are looking for opportunities to be able to speak a word for Christ. That might be on an airplane as we're traveling someplace. It might be in our neighborhood as we're talking across the backyard fence. It might be within the purview of our own families. It might be at work if it's allowed that we can talk about such things there. But wherever we are, we're always looking for, as we go, we're looking for opportunities to share the truth with others. And that's going to be a congregation, a church that's convicted by the necessity of the ministry of all the saints. You see, every one of us is a minister and a missionary, not just the guy who stands up here and preaches a sermon. But only a church like we've described this morning will grow. Our specific interest at this moment is to making sure that you are a part of that church. If you've never yielded your life to the Lord, if you've never turned your back on the world in sincere repentance and said, Lord, I am sorry for the way that I've lived and I'm determined and committed to doing better from now on. If you've never confessed his name as the Son of God and been baptized to have your sins washed away by his blood, you can do that right now and he will add you to his church while we stand, while we sing.